0: We're looking at the subject today, the hurt of past memories. And you'll notice in your bulletin outline that the first point is this thing about selective memory. Think about it. If all we did was dwell on the bad past memories of our lives, then life would be pretty miserable. I mean, who wants to wallow all day long in the mistakes, the poor choices, the sinful decisions that we have made in the past. On the other hand, it is not wise either to be a Pollyanna. That is, a person who never wants to admit that something is gloomy or hurtful or bad or heartrending. I mean, these are the kind of people, if they're served lemons, they make lemonade out of it. So that all is well all the time. These eternal optimists have a false sense of happiness and never quite realize the seriousness of life, the consequences of poor choices and sinful actions. There are consequences to those things. Being cheerful when the world is crashing in around you is not necessarily a sign of piety. It may be a sign of naivete. Such unrealistic evaluations of life may dull the senses to the pain of reality. But they create another kind of pain. And that's the pain attending gullibility and denial. I'm calling this selective memory. Selective because this kind of person picks and chooses from life's experiences to paint a picture that is more rosy than reality and less dire than the reality really portrays. As an example of this, consider Israel as a nation after the exodus, after the wilderness trek, after experiences experiencing God's provision of manna from heaven for food, and water from the rock for drink. Phenomenal provisions in a desert setting. We read in the scripture, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember, here it is, We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now, now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this this manna. Numbers 11, verse 4, 4 and 5. This is an astonishing statement indeed. God sent Moses to emancipate them from the slavery and indentured servitude of the Egyptian taskmasters. And what is it that they choose to remember? Fish, cucumbers, melons, garlic. At no cost. No cost? How did they define cost? Well, because they did not have to go to the local market and buy their produce like the freemen of Egypt. Did that mean that their meals were free? The prisoners at our local prison get three squares a day. does that mean? The meals are free. Moses records their plight when the new Pharaoh came to power who had no recollection of Joseph. And here's what he writes So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they, the Israelites, built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. Oh, oh, the fields? The fields. Isn't that where produce is grown? Cucumbers, leeks, melons, garlic? In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. They worked them ruthlessly. They used them ruthlessly. Exodus 1, verse 11 through 14. No wonder God said in later years to Israel, Remember, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15. Remember, (laughs) who could forget? Ah, but they did forget. They did forget. And not only did they forget, their recollection of life there was a more pleasant tale than the facts warranted. They put too much weight on their diet and too little weight on the torn flesh and the calloused hands and the flogged backs from the taskmaster's whips, even death, which it cost them. Pay for the free food they consume. You see, nothing was free. Everything came at a great price. Everything was at the cost of hard, backbreaking, grueling labor. And now, and now, in the desert, with a bread that rained from heaven, and settled on the ground like dew and water that flowed copiously from a rock which followed them wherever they journeyed, neither of which they had to labor or fight for to obtain, short of gathering the manna in baskets each morning and taking a bucket and putting it under the fountain, issuing from the rock. Now, now, what was their perspective? If only we had meat to eat. Now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but uh, this manna. Watch out for the word this. Whenever people put the word this in front of something, this man, this woman, this whatever, it's usually a sign of contempt sign of belittlement, this manna. we've lost our appetite. All we have is this manna. It's interesting that bread and water and healthy, wholesome bodies that did not age or get sick, clothes and sandals that did not wear out, to name some other things, was not enough for these people to be thankful. I'm reading the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who opposed Hitler and was confined to a number of concentration camps by the Nazis. How thankful he was to receive a bowl of watered-down potato soup and a moldy crust of bread. Israel had a selective memory. They remembered the food of Egypt's rich farms, and they forgot the blood and the tears by which they paid for every morsel. And they forgot something else. They forgot the hard-fought battle of wills between God and Pharaoh, and the mighty miracles that God had to perform to secure their freedom. In later years with the nation of Israel, when it was but a memory, Nehemiah in captivity reflected, and here's what he wrote. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. We can not hardly believe this. But he's telling it true. They appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path. Nor the pillar of fire by night. To shine on them the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Nehemiah 9, 17 through 21. Now there's a guy that's got good reflection, good use of memory. Moses takes us back to the earlier date of the Exodus itself when he writes these words. Remember today, he says to the Israelites, remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs that he performed, and the things that he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to the whole country. What he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots. How he overwhelmed them with the water of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you. And how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord had done. Deuteronomy 11 verses 2. 7. Yeah, they saw it firsthand, all these miracles. But Nehemiah says they forgot the miracles. They forgot the strong arm of the Lord that emancipated them. And so what these two biblical authors, Moses and Nehemiah are saying is that the Exodus itself and the sustaining providence of God thereafter required the mighty hand of God to execute that. Pharaoh did not say to Moses, sure, take your people, go, and may the force be with you. No, time and time again, he promised one thing, and he delivered another. He promised liberty, and he inflicted more servitude. As George would say, you know, some people are so stubborn it takes a two-by-four right smack between the eyes to get their attention. This was Pharaoh. Pharaoh budged from his entrenched decision never to free the Israelites. Only after God took his firstborn son in judgment. Nine other plagues might have moved less obstinate men, but not Pharaoh. His pride would not let him bend to the will of God until God broke him. Israel had a selective memory. They remembered some of the nice times they had in Egypt and they forgot about all the bad times. They remembered the variety of food and they forgot the bloody price it cost them. I wonder, do we do any better? Does God somehow become the brunt of our complaints when he deserves our great love and admiration for his sustaining and miraculous grace? You know, Israel's selective memory angered God. And it angered God because it was unjust and because it blamed God for their own sinful attitude. We need to be careful On Memorial Day, when we think about memories, that we are not simply selective and then bring up all the complaints. Secondly, notice in your outline, God's selective forgetfulness. Israel came within a hair's breadth a number of times of God just wiping them off the face of the map. While Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God that is summarized in the Ten Commandments, all of you know those, the people were doing what? They were worshiping a golden calf of their own uh, making at the foot of the mountain and fornicating in gross orgies like the pagan cultures. Everything vile and unholy they engaged in. And God's anger ran so hot that he said to Moses, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. What's he saying to Moses? Step back. Stand clear. Look out. I am about to exterminate these ingrates. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Exodus 32, verse 9 and following. He came that close. That close. at the judgment of Korah for his sin of rebellion 250 ordinary men ordinary men interceded into the priest's office by offering incense and God struck them dead you don't do that only the priests were to offer incense And then the scripture says, this was to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. Numbers 16, verse 35. Well, God struck him dead, but this didn't sit well with the people, because the next verse says, the next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron's saying you have killed the lord's people. Number 16 verse 41. And God hearing that picks up in verse 44, the lord said to moses get away from this assembly so that i can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down and then moses said to aaron take your censer and put incense in it along from fire from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. And so Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. And the plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. Number 16, verse 44 and following. Once again, Moses and Aaron's intercession halted the wrath of God and his anger was abated. Now none of us would argue that God had no right to be angry as to determine to annihilate Israel. They had lived up to God's definition of them as being stiff-necked and rebellious. They opposed God at every turn. They were self-centered religious people who substituted their own brand of righteousness for God's and expected God to take that. But instead of annihilation, God forgave Israel's sins and chose to forget. He chose to forget their transgressions. Brethren, it's called mercy. Mercy is undeserved grace You receive a kindness you do not deserve. You receive a compassion that defies the seriousness of your offense. That's mercy. The Bible authors reflect on this many times. We read it today in the psalmist. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, in my rebellious ways, according to your love, remember me. For you are good, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore He instructs his sinners in His ways. He guides the humble in what is right, and testifies, excuse me, and teaches them His ways. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of His covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity though it is great. Psalm 25, verse 6 through 11. Contrition brings forgiveness. Isaiah writes, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Isaiah 64, verse 8 and 9. Jeremiah voices a similar prayer. Have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hope for peace. But no good has come for a time of healing But there is only terror. O Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Jeremiah 14, verse 19 through 21. And then from the little prophet of Habakkuk, he writes, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. I want you to know that in all of these texts, the authors are not criticizing God for a judgment undeserved. Now they know, they know, That they and the people they represent have sinned against God in grievous ways. But they are pleading with God to remember just who it is he is judging, who he is hurting. It is none other than those who acknowledge God as their father. Isaiah 64 verse 6. The God who made a covenant, a promise to them as His people, Jeremiah 14, verse 21. And they plead their case, not on the basis of innocence, but rather, as the psalmist pleaded, for the sake of Your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Psalm 25, verse 11. Get the principle here. It is this. God, we deserve everything you're dishing out upon us. But we are pleading with you, do not remember our sins. Remember instead that we are the clay, you are the potter, we are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Isaiah 64, verse 8. It is an appeal to selective forgetfulness. Forget our rebellion. Remember your faithfulness to your covenant promise. Remember that instead. Now, this is their prayer. We've read all these scriptures. This is how they're pleading to God. What's God's response? We'd like to know that, right? He says in Jeremiah, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31 verse 34. We have it in our text, verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where there have been for, where, where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 10 15 through 18. What he's saying is that forgiven sins are already atoned for and God may forget what he has forgiven. And by the way, that's the definition of forgiveness for us too. We're to forget. You ever hear someone say, well I'll forgive you but I'll never forget what you did to me. Well, Let me tell you, that person does not understand Forgiveness. Again, Isaiah writes Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you, and you are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, and your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Isaiah 44, verses 21 through 23. Little Micah, the prophet Micah. You will again have compassion on us, he writes. You will tread our sins underfoot. You will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Micah 7, verse 19 and 20. And the psalmist writes it this way, As far as the east is from the west, So far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows that we are formed. He understands that we are dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over and it's gone, and its place remembers no more. But from everlasting to everlasting... The Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. Psalm 103, verse 12 through 18. Let me ask this question. How can God forget anything? How can God forget anything? I mean, doesn't His trade of omniscience teach us that he knows all things. He's not in school learning things. He knows all things. And do we not have verses that say, and I'll read one for you, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4 verse 13. That means he sees everything. And you can't hide from God. All these scriptures that we read, which say that God forgets our sins or removes them from His sight or buries them in the depths of the sea. This is what we call in, in theology anthropomorphisms. Whoa, say whoa, that's a big word. Anthropomorphisms. It's a big word with a simple but precious truth. Anthropos, Greek word for man, anthropology, the study of man. Morph to change, morphism, to change to alter. And so a scriptural anthropomorphism is God speaking his will in such a way as to adapt it or couch it or change it into the language of men. So we can understand what God is saying. Of course God knows all things. And he does not suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's. So he forgets nothing. So when the Bible says that God remembers our sins no more, it is saying in our language, God will treat you in such a way that it will appear to you, you will understand that God has forgotten your sin. It is, in fact, a selective forgetfulness. A forgetfulness which God has chosen to exercise towards the people that He loves. The people with whom He has entered into covenant. And as we have learned he does not or excuse me he does this for his own glory for in keeping his promises and remaining consistent in his love God proves himself true and faithful based upon his own character and not how you perform This is grace It's grace And we all need his grace to survive his just wrath. Listen to the psalmist. He, (laughs) He has it in encapsulated form. Here's what he says: Speaking of God, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. So far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12. We don't get what we deserve if we're in Christ. If we believe in Christ and accept His cross work, for our sins, then Jesus did pay it all. And because of the blood of Christ and His sacrifice, God can look upon us with favor instead of wrath. Okay, then lastly, how do we deal with the memories that haunt us? Firstly, you'll note in my outline, remember God's selective forgetfulness And that it is based upon selective love. There's a stark, stark contrast in the Bible between how God relates to the children of promise and how he relates to the nations. Even within Abraham's descendants, one generation removed, God made this declaration. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, and Edom would be the nation that came from Esau, Edom may say, Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Malachi 1 verse 2 through 4. And that's because of what the Bible says about Esau. He was a wicked and godless man. The New Testament account adds this exclamation. Before the twins, that's Jacob and Esau, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, verse 11 through 13. Now, well, this certainly does not mean that Jacob lived his life as a saint. Now, he wasn't a saint. He was a scoundrel. He was a liar. He was a deceiver, a cheat, a wheeler-dealer, greedy, self, self-absorbed, until God saved him. By the way, all of us are—all of us Christians—are that. Maybe not these particular sins. They were true of Jacob, but we're sinners. We're not saints. But you see, that is the point. God set his affection upon Jacob for nothing noteworthy in Jacob, but simply on the premise of God's sovereign choice. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9 verse 15. It's it's my decision. God's selective forgetfulness with regard to sin is based on his selective love. May I say redemptive love. Not leniency now. But it's love that made atonement for the sin that's going to be forgotten. And so Paul instructs us as Christian people, brothers and sisters in Christ, bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Did he make you pay? Did he make you do penance? As if anything we did could satisfy the holiness of God. Now he sent his son to die for people he loved and to do for them what they could not do for themselves. It's called mercy. It's called grace. So firstly then, remember that God's selective forgetfulness is based on selective love. See, I thought God loved everybody. Not in the saving sense or everyone would be saved, right? Think about that. Well, then he must just save good people. No, no, he saves bad people. (laughs) He saves wicked people who rely upon a good Savior that's paid the price at Calvary. Secondly, you need to remember that you have a sordid past But God has forgiven. It's because He's forgiven that He forgets. Paul called upon the Ephesian brethren to keep some data in their memory bank. And here's what he says. Remember, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. And foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world, that's what you were. You were idolaters, but idols aren't gods. But now, listen to the change. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two, that is, Jew and Gentile, one and has destroyed the barrier of the dividing wall of hostility. Consequently, here's the conclusion, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. What a great transition. No people, now a people. Foreigners, now friends outside of the family of God, now family. Ephesians 2 verse 19 and 20. Do you see here how Paul uses memory? It's important. It is not used to cause you to wallow in the regret of a guilty conscience for your sinful past. No. Paul uses memory to cause you to remember the glorious transforming grace of God in Christ Jesus whose blood has made peace with God and with one another. We have it in our text. Verse 21 and following. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in what? Full assurance. Full assurance of faith. Having what? Our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. We're not faithful, but he's faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Folks, once God has set his affection on you, and that happened in eternity past, scripture says our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Eternity, Lamb's book, Before the Creation of the World. Once he sets his affections upon you, there's no turning back on God's part. There's no changing of his mind. There's no disowning of you. There's no threat of future judgment. There's no condemnation. We call it, in a nutshell, salvation. Whoa. God saves me. Saves me from me. Saves me from my own sin. Saves me from the judgment due to sin. Listen to Paul. Here it is from scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and Romans 8, verse 1 and 2. Now, this is profitable recollection. It is memory bolstered by the grace of God, and that is what God wants you to recall. Not all of your past sins and mistakes and all of that, but to dwell on his grace and mercy. Israel... Don't paint the picture rosy back there. It wasn't rosy. But give God the credit. He brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And every Christian here this morning, God has brought us out of the Egypt of our world, the sinfulness of our world, and set our feet upon the solid rock, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gets the glory. He gets the praise. That's the kind of Memorial Day we need to think about not forgetting our loved ones that have passed or the soldiers and sailors and airmen that have fought for the freedom that we enjoy, freedom of religion being one of them, but remembering that there was another battle, another battle that went on, God warring against Satan for our souls, and in Christ he won. Our Lord, grant to us an understanding of this, This is heavy-duty stuff in some ways. How thankful we are that you choose to forget our sins and iniquities because you pay for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for everyone here that doesn't know you that today you might draw them to this saving reality. This This is why we preach the gospel, and that's why the gospel is good news. God isn't saying to us, save yourself, save yourself, do penance, do good works. No, he says there's none righteous, not one. There's none good. Well, there was one, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by living in perfect obedience to the law and by dying under the curse of the law for our sins, he has become our substitute, our stand-in. And our sins are punished in him if we believe that, if we trust that. May we do so. And may today be a a day of recollection of the grace and the mercy of God. Amen.